Hello, and welcome to another episode of Streaming Science, a creative, student-run podcast series from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We bring the science directly to you. The goal of Streaming Science is to increase science literacy through interactive discussion with scientists about topics that affect your everyday life. I'm your host, Emily Hergneider, a junior environmental studies major with an agricultural and environmental sciences communication minor. This episode of Streaming Science is focused on women in science. As an environmental female at UNL, I focus this interview on what it is like to be a woman in earth and atmospheric science and what obstacles or hardships women go through to become scientists. Joining me today is Dr. Caroline Burberry. Dr. Burberry is not only a professor and researcher here at UNL, but she is also an associate editor for the AAPG Bulletin and for the Central European Journal of Geosciences. Dr. Burberry received her PhD from Imperial College in London, where she began her study of the Earth's plate tectonics. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Burberry. How are you doing? Doing good, thank you. To begin, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? So I'm a professor of geology here at the university. I've been working here for about six, six and a half years. I joined in the fall of 2010. And the thing that gets me excited about geology is being able to go out and to look at real rock in beautiful, beautiful landscapes. What I care about, what I do my research on, is how rocks go from being initially deposited pretty horizontally, laid down very flat, and to me not very exciting, into these beautiful shapes that are uplifted and that are mountain ranges that we go and see today. Amazing. So what do you do here at UNL? My job is split between teaching and research time. And that involves a handful of different things. Right now I'm teaching one of the survey courses, so Geology 101. And that's an ACE for non-majors and majors in both in the same room. So that's an interesting challenge trying to match what the majors need versus what the non-majors are just going to find too much information. That's my teaching load right now. I also supervise two graduate students and an undergraduate student, couple of undergraduate students, three undergraduates, I think, at the moment, doing independent research projects on various different things. Then last of all, then I have time for my own research. So quite a collection of different things to do. So what do you do for your research right now? The project I've got right now is looking at some seismic data in western Nebraska. So... Back in the 80s, vertical profiles were shot in western Nebraska and that picture of a vertical slice through the earth. And so I'm combining some of this data and attempting to interpret it to understand which rock layers are where and what the shapes, what the structures of those rock layers are doing. Awesome. What experiments have you done with your particular research? The experimental side of research for me is using the sandbox upstairs. So I have a modeling lab where we built a rig that's got one moving back wall and the other three walls are fixed. So it's like a box with one wall that moves. And so you make flat layers of sand and then you push the moving wall. And so the layers of sand scrumple up. What we're looking for is to see what happens in the very, very beginning stages of that scrumpling up process before you see a big fold or a fault, before you see really clear structures, there's a very small amount of volume that is just lost where things are just compacted together. And we are trying to track how that evolves through the deformation sequence as the as the moving wall scrumples things up. How could you apply that to a student's life? How could that 
potentially affect them in the future. So there was a sort of real world applications to to that research. There were there are two different directions. One is if you wanted to go into any kind of fluid flow related industry. So that might be the hydrocarbon industry or it might be looking at groundwater. And a lot of students from this university go into groundwater. It's a big deal in our state. Because as that volume loss happens in that very early stage, so do you lose pore space and you lose places to put water. So it reduces the quality of an aquifer or you lose places to put oil and gas. So it reduces the quality of a reservoir. That's one. And then the other's a bit more sort of fundamental in terms of our understanding of plate tectonics. Now, most people are familiar with the concept that you crash two tectonic plates together and you build a mountain belt. Well, what we've noticed is that if you take GPS data, so geodetic data in real time, that is looking at how fast those plates are moving together, and then you also look at a cross-section that a geologist has built from field data, and you say, well, this cross-section is, if I flatten it back out, it tells me that it moved at so many millimeters per year you'll find there's totally different numbers between what the geologic cross-section is telling you and what the GPS data is telling you. So that tells us instantly that we don't really understand how this plate tectonic process is working. And my research group is thinking about whether this volume loss that we are documenting might play some role in trying to reconcile those two rates if the geologic cross-section isn't incorporating the volume loss that we have found in our experiments then it stands to reason that they're going to get a different number from the real-time number which is incorporating that volume loss and so that's going to tell us something more about how plate tectonics works on a big scale so what drew you to plate tectonics the joy of solving a puzzle when i first started doing geology i found structural geology so faults and folds and cross-sections and things like that i found that really quite difficult. And I struggled with it and struggled with it and struggled with it until I came to view it as the process of solving a puzzle rather than this thing to bang my head against. And the satisfaction you get from disentangling this very complicated scenario and being able to say, well, it started off looking like this and then such and so and the other happened. And now I have this beautiful, glorious landscape. It doesn't hurt that a lot of structural geology research goes on in fantastic mountain belts. I did some of my undergraduate research in the French Alps. I've been in the Middle East looking at rocks. I've been in northern Iraq looking at rocks. I've been in Vietnam looking at rocks. So it doesn't hurt that you get to go to some fantastic places to do research as well. So when you were a child, did you like doing puzzles and problem solving in that same way? Or did that come from your education? I've always liked doing puzzles and I've always liked picking up rocks. It wasn't until partway through undergraduate that it dawned on me that I could put those two things together and that there was so much that wasn't cut and dried. Did you have any role models that led you into doing what you're doing today? I think there were a few professors on my way up through my education that were definitely very significant in getting me involved in research. I can remember the professor who first helped me get funded for a summer internship doing research was the first time that I had really done research as an undergraduate and seen that doing research and solving puzzles was something one could keep doing that had some real world applications and that one could also get paid for. Unfortunately has to make money and support oneself. 
So that professor was was very influential in getting me started on doing research. But I've been very lucky. I've had some very supportive professors all the way up. Did you overcome any obstacles while you were gaining your education? And if yes, do you feel any of those were more difficult due to the fact that you're a woman in a science field? There's part of me that wants, that, that sort of instinctively wants to say, oh, no, 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 no. And I did realize that I think my graduating class was actually unusual. I saw my graduation photograph last night when we got our undergraduate degrees and there were, of the geology group, 50-50 men to women split. Now that in geology is supremely unusual. Mm. And I certainly had one or two professors that would gravitate to the male students, would give them more time, would give them more attention, would tend to dismiss some of us. It was interesting that the geophysics, which is a more, the more kind of mathematical end of geology, or one of the more mathematical ends of geology, was mostly men. And that some of the softer sciences, well, environmental geology is typically considered a more women's field. And that doesn't have to be true by any stretch of the imagination. And I certainly found that one of my geophysics professors, not all of them, would call upon the men in class, would tend to sideline us. I remember once going to him to ask for help on a problem. It was a homework exercise. And I knew that I was going round in circles. And I knew exactly what the matter was, but I did not know how to fix it. And he looked at me and he said, you know, it's wrong because it's wrong. Go away. And I can't be 100% sure that that was gender related, but you do wonder because that was not his attitude to the men in the classroom. Mm. And so for me, there was nothing very overt ever. But a lot of these little subtleties, you'd, you'd go to ask a question and you'd think, oh, that's interesting. So if you all had your hands raised, it seemed like... Yes, he would men call, on. call on. Call on. Yes. So I am a woman pursuing an environmental degree, mm -hmm. sitting in a classroom. What advice would you give to me to make sure that my professor calls on me and knows that I am here and that I'm important? Did you ever find yourself having to kind of overcompensate in that area? I did find myself overcompensating, yes. And I think the best advice and the advice I typically give to the young women who come to me now is find your cohort of people who are going to support you and build you up, even in the case of these difficult people who are going to try and throw obstacles in your way. There's something very reassuring about knowing that you're not on your own. And I've noticed that even if you're not directly tackling the professor with the, who's, who's, being the, who's the difficult one, you can get some of your young women to remember that they've got people in their corner. It gives them just a little bit more confidence, I think, or determination to go back into that situation and be their brilliant selves, regardless of whether that's being acknowledged. Because the worst thing you can do is just hunker down and put your head down. When you do that, they've won. But you also need to know that you've got a cohort of people who think the same way as you and who think you're brilliant and who are going to support you if that means letting you rent, letting you vent, if that means saying, okay, well, here's a different way to try that. And there are times and places to do both of those things. I think it's no coincidence that a lot of the students I mentor are young women and that my office is typically known as one of the safe spaces in the department where 
people who are having a particularly rough day with a supervisor, with another student, with a class, will come and sit on this couch and talk to me about it. Whether all I can do is listen, they go away feeling better. If I can offer constructive advice, they go away feeling better. Do you have any examples of a common obstacle that, that you've seen in a lot of college students today? that they've had to overcome or similarities between the students that come to your office and talk to you about difficulties that they've had as women in the science field? One that's very specific to women in geology is this pervasive attitude that women can't do field work. One has to be in reasonably good physical shape to climb up and down mountains and fall off cliffs and look at rocks. But one does not have to be a specific gender to be able to do that. A number of the young the women in this department say that when they've been at field camp, which is a mandated part of a geology degree, they find the attitude of the male students at field camp towards them is really very negative. Oh, well, you won't be able to do that. You're a girl. You won't be able to do that. Let me do that. Let me do that for you. And even among the students seems to be this pervasive attitude that the girls aren't going to be as good at the field aspect of geology. And yet what you need to be, as I said, you need to be in passable physical shape. You are climbing up and down mountains, but you also need to be detail oriented and you need to be keenly observant. And there is no reason. Women are often better at that than the men. <laughs> Women are often very detail-oriented. The reality is it doesn't matter, and a lot of professors are working very hard to tackle that bias and to be very even-handed when we're in the field. I try very hard when I take a group of students in the field to, to mentally keep a track of, okay, I've called on these three gentlemen. These girls are not speaking up. Why are the girls not speaking up? Am I not calling on them? Is it my fault? Are the lads jumping in too soon? What do I need to do to counteract this sort of student-led student dynamic mm -hmm. in this instance? Within your education to become a professor, was that ever discussed, um, no. the gender, gender gap? No, it was not. This was, this was not something that I ever encountered being discussed, actually until I came to this department. And I encountered it being discussed in this department because one of our former professors was the chair of the advanced program here, which is a grant from the National Science Foundation to improve the gender balance of women in the sciences. Mm -hmm. So we had Professor Holmes in our department sparking a lot of these conversations about women in the sciences and specifically women in geology. Had we not had Dr. Holmes here, I don't know if we'd have had those explicit conversations here. Hmm. And that on its own is alarming. Mm -hmm. Did those conversations help you as a professor, as a faculty member, knowing that it was being discussed amongst the faculty and everyone had a mutual understanding of the issue? Do you feel like that helped you and the faculty as a whole tackle the issue? Does that make I sense? Think it, yeah, I, I think I see what you're saying. And I think it's made... A couple of differences, very, very personally, and it's made us all as it made us as a unit much more aware of the challenges that the young women in our department are facing. For me, one of the good parts about the fact that this was a conversation that was ongoing was a reasonable amount of flexibility around my maternity leave. When I got here, I was pregnant, and I don't advise. <laughs> 
having to ask your boss for maternity leave in your first few weeks of a new job. The timing was terrible, but I wanted my baby, so that, that was that. And I remember that the first person that got involved, other than me and the chair of the department, the first person that got involved in that discussion was Dr. Holmes. Okay, here are the things that you are entitled to. Here are the things you need to ask for. It wasn't a complete conversation, as I discovered later. There were some things that even Dr. Holmes hadn't known I could have asked for. And I wasn't, I'm not an American citizen, so at the time there were one or two things that I just was not my visa status wouldn't allow me to have. I couldn't take family medical leave, for example. Oh, wow. As I was the wrong sort of foreigner. We're making progress. Hopefully it won't be so awkward. It wasn't so awkward the second time around. You know, we sort of knew, oh, oh this is how we do this. Mm -hmm. So if you could give advice to a 13-year-old girl who is maybe on the fence about whether or not she even enjoys science, or maybe she hasn't even been introduced to it yet. What would you tell her to get her kind of excited? Would you tell her? What would I tell her? I think the first thing you, that you have to tell them is you can do anything that you want to do. If you set your mind to it, you can do these things. Some aspects of doing science are challenging at times, but they're also incredibly rewarding. And then I think the next thing I would say is find yourself a role model. Find yourself a mentor. Find yourself a role model. Find yourself a cheerleader. Find yourself a cheerleader because the reality is that there are going to be some hiccups. And if you've got somebody who you know has got your back going, you can do this. Here is how we get around. We collectively get around this hiccup. You will succeed. I think one of the beauties of the women's groups and the, the the movements that we're seeing is women banding together to support each other. And that grassroots network is so important. Definitely. Do you have anything else that you would like to discuss for our listeners? Um, not that I can think of. Perfect. Thank you so much for letting me talk to you. A special thanks to our guest, Caroline Burberry, for joining us and to all of you for tuning in. To listen to more Streaming Science podcasts, go to soundcloud.com slash streaming hyphen science. I am your host, Emily Hergnader, signing off. Have a great rest of your day.